And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's not too uncommon to hear Catholics today look at some of the crises uh, and challenges facing the church today. Uh, you know, over the last uh, 20 years now, uh, we've had, you know, we've been living in the shadow of the abuse crisis. And, um, you know, certainly this is terrible. There's no, I can't remember the first time I was asked, I was interviewed about what I thought about this abuse crisis in the church. I remember there was a non-Catholic uh, who was interviewing me, and I said, well, wh- how do you think I feel about it? I think it's hard- terrible. It- it's-, it's a wicked thing. Uh, and then we have people who are afraid that we are afraid of the synod on synodality, for instance, believing that somehow uh, this is going to open the door to radical changes in church teaching. And uh, just received an email uh, yesterday uh, from a listener who's feeling that way. I think it's good. One of the things that has helped me maintain stability is actually coming familiar with church history. And I'll tell you, a man who does that with great um, um, wit, intelligence, and insight is Steve Weidenkamp. He is the author of several books. Uh, We're looking today, though, at... Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. Steve, good to have you back here. Uh, good afternoon, Ali. Thanks for having me on the show again. Good to talk to you. Let, let's go to this. You've, you've seen a lot in your studies over the years, um, and I imagine you get asked all the time, uh, are, how, how bad off are we today compared to the past? What do yeah, you say? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Alan. It's actually the reason why I wrote the book that we're talking about tonight, right? Light from Darkness, uh, my most recent book, is is because of that exact question. I went around, you know, when I teach, when I give presentations at parishes, or just talking with people, um, that's that's one of the first questions they'll say. They'll actually have said to me that, "Oh, this is this the worst time that we're ever living in church yeah. history?" Yeah. And uh, you know, at first, it, when I got that question, I was I was taken aback because. My immediate re- response is because of you know, what I do and teach, and, and I, I have this knowledge. I thought, well, you got to, you, you can't be serious. I mean, there, were <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there were worse times in church history, but I don't, I don't want to be, um, you know, I, I don't want to make the person feel ignorant or, or you know, right. have any kind of you know negativity towards them or whatever to criticize them. So I just I kind of ask them, you know, well, why do you think that? And then they give me some some of their rationale or whatever, and then I try to teach them and tell them, you know, well. No, I mean, this is not really the worst time in church history, and here's why. I mean, there were other times that were bad, but it, it's okay to have this sense of, you know, geez, we're living in a crisis. Um, you know, there's all these things that I see that are going on in the church that are that are negative, or people doing things in the church, more appropriately, that are negative. And, you know, I I think people are wrestling with how do I how do I cope with that? Right. How do I right. how do I handle that? As as you pointed out, right? And so, as you mentioned too, I mean, church history is, I think, the great teacher or should be the great teacher for us when it comes to these kinds of situations we find ourselves in. And one of the things I highlight in the book, though, is I know it's difficult for people in the modern world to, to deal with that, uh, or to, to, I think, you know, go to church history in the first place, or an immediate place, because we live in such an age, in a day and age with technology and social media and everything, where the, the present is so present, in oh, us, if you will, right? Yes. So our focus is so much on the immediate that we lose a sense of context and we lose a sense of perspective. And that's really the reason why I wrote the book, is to help us, to help Catholics 
um, turn to church history and give us that sense of perspective uh, and not just kind of knee-jerk react to things in the church, but to take a step back and recognize not just that things were possibly worse than they were in the, in the past, but even more so, that, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a nice little platitude, but even more than that is to, to see, as I try to point out in the book, that God brings forth reform, renewal, and good things yeah. out of dark times in the church's history. Yeah. So. No, I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, that's, uh, look, we believe God raises the dead, for heaven's sake. Uh, he can certainly bring uh, good out of these times of evil. Take me back to uh, the time of Roman persecution. Um, you, a lot of times we look back on those days, kind of idealize uh, heroic, you know, martyrs, and must have been an especially, you know, everybody was willing uh, to go to his death, uh, breathing the name of Jesus. But it wasn't that simple, was it? No, it wasn't, and and that's you're exactly. Right. I mean, that's that's the first chapter in the book is is this look of of this crisis known as the lapsi back in church history and during in the times of the Roman persecution. So, going back to the period of the Great Persecution in, in the late third, early fourth century under Diocletian, and then the aftermath of all of that. That even before that too, the church is dealing with this in the third century even, where you have Christians react different ways, right, to the different persecutions. Um, and you have some who were faithful, who were brought before the magistrates, the Roman magistrates, and who, you know, held on to their faith vigorously and, and you know, were, were condemned to death for their faith. And so we, these are the people, as you mentioned, we, the saints and others that we tend to, St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, mm-hmm. in the second century, and others that we, that we kind of, um, we remember, obviously, in the liturgy, but also the stories resonate with us, that they met their, their they went to their death you know, with the name of Jesus on their mouth, if you will. Uh, but then there were others, too. There were some that were in, just in prison. There were others who were, um, you know, who, who kind of skirted away. Some some even fled, right? We even have examples of bishops, St. Cyprian initially fled his diocese under, uh, went into the desert and kind of you know, was criticized by many others for doing so, for leaving his flock unattended during the persecution. Mm. Um, next time persecution came, uh, he didn't do that, and he was, he was martyred. But you know, so, but the real issue here in the early church that that, that um, was a huge crisis was, well, what do we do? So the other people, the other group of people were people who gave in, who were, who lapsed, yeah. who, you know, the, were told, hey, we want you to offer this pinch of incense to the Roman God, and they went and did so. Uh, or they, they were, if they were wealthy Christians, we have examples of them sending their servants to do so wow. um, in their name with the thought that, you know, well, I didn't personally, you know, offering <laughs> <Right>. the incense, <laughs> but my servant did for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> trying to skirt the, the moral law that way. Um, and so these people were, no, and then when persecution was ended, these people then wanted to come back into the church. Uh, and so there was this huge uh, crisis uh, of what to do with these people, right? Uh, and different um, camps developed, really two different camps that developed in the church over this uh, situation. Do we, there was one camp that said, you know, nope, sorry, I mean, you gave in, you rejected the faith, you rejected Christ, you rejected the church. Other people went to death, you know, for their faith. You took the easy path and, and gave in. So, no, we're not gonna, you're not welcome back to communion. Um, you're gone forever. Uh, and then another group um, was more merciful and said, well, we understand that, you know, why you may have given in on a human level, fine, sure. But, and if you're truly sorry, truly repentant, then fine, after a period of, of penance, 
um, and the performance of that penance, then you can be welcomed back into, into communion. Right. And thankfully, it was that latter camp that, that was really focused and uh, implemented by the Roman pontiffs that, that carried the water, if you will, in the Church's understanding of how to deal with these people, because it really recognized right Christ, and it recognized mercy and this understanding of forgiveness and of a second chance and of um, over time, then, what developed was this, this greater and better understanding of the pastoral impl- implications of the sacrament of confession, and even more importantly, over the centuries, then it developed as to how confession and how the sacrament was then engaged in, right? So, I mean, it went from, in the early church, you know, you would confess your sins publicly right. uh, to the bishop, and the bishop would give you a public penance, and you had to stand outside the church, um, from you know every week at mass and ask people beg people to pray for you while they're at mass, but you couldn't go in yourself, oh. uh, and that could last for a long time, months to years. Wow, um, which is significantly different than you know now where we follow the more Irish custom, which then um, became universal of you know auricular individual confession to a priest with absolution granted before even the, the saying of the or the uh, performance of the penance. So. You know, and that's good. I mean, I think we like it that way, right? Most of us probably don't want to go and confess <laughs> our sins publicly right. in front of our neighbors and everybody in the church. So, um, but that's just one example of how a crisis, very early in the church's history, then produced this great re- re- renewal and reform and a greater understanding and pastoral application of the sacrament of, cont- of confession. Yeah, and, and it is amazing that uh, after those persecutions. Uh, the we have you might say the Constantinian Revolution at that point, where all of a sudden the Church uh, enters into peace uh, and gets the patronage uh, of you know the Empire. Uh, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the Empire who that was the you know the instrument of the Church's persecution yeah. becomes you know embraces the faith and right and. You know, that wouldn't have happened had there not been the witness of the martyrs and, and you know, the, the difficult time of crisis in the Church. And so, yeah, that follows after that, you know, centuries of, of you know, uh, patronage and of growth and of expansion and of the spreading of the gospel. Yeah. Um, take, us to, take us to a time when uh, heresy was a problem, where, where people were afraid that uh, the church was falling into uh, doctrinal error, uh, and heretics or heretical groups seemed to be uh, you know, the, the the wave of the future. Yeah, well, there was a time. I mean, in the in the book, one of the chapters I talk about is the you know the well known or infamous Albigensian heresy, mm-hmm. which right. kind of waged in the you know the late twelfth, early thirteenth, and so thirteenth centuries, and this was you know a, a heresy that. Um, really took root and flourished uh, and expressed itself in the south of France. Uh, and this this was for a lot of different reasons, both political as well as ecclesial reasons, as to why the heresy uh, tended to, it didn't originate there, it's thought to have originated further in the east, more in the Balkan states maybe, uh, or the Balkan area of Europe, eastern Europe, but it really flourished and, and expanded in southern France. And again, a lot of different reasons for that, a lot of the political um, actual Actually, but so this heresy, these Albigensians, this is it was they were kind of a new form, if you will, of Manichaeanism and Manichees. And, and Manichaeanism was something the Church had dealt with early in her life. You know, in the third and fourth centuries, Saint Augustine was dealing with these people um, during the time that he was alive and bishop in, in North Africa. And so the Manichees slash and now Albigensians here later in Church history 
or dualists, uh, simply put. They're people who who believed in, and saw the world in kind of two different groups, right? A spiritual group or spiritual world and a material group and material world. And they actually believe that there were, if you will, kind of two gods. There was a god of goodness, a god of light, a god of all spiritual things. Um, and then there was a god of, of material things of, of, who was you know, dark and, and evil. Yeah. And so maybe on the other side of the yep. break, we can we'll pick it up from there. Detail. All right. My guest, uh, Steve Weidenkopf, is the author of Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Steve Weidenkopf. He's the author of several books. We're looking at we're looking at Light from the Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. But Steve teaches uh, church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, and he's written some other outstanding books, including The Glory of the Crusades and The Real Story of Catholic History. He is the creator of the epic video series on church history. And um, you can follow his work uh, at Twitter, at S. Weidenkopf. We'll have it linked for you at our site. And you can uh, also visit uh, stephenweidenkopf.com to learn more. So we were talking about the uh, Albigensian heresy that's growing up, and uh, the, there's a, this is a new heresy that um, there's the coexisting two mutually opposed principles. You've got good and evil. Good was spiritual. Evil was material. Um and this is get, this is catching on, right? I mean, this is actually affecting uh, people in the church uh, and teachers. And so, uh, Pope Lucius the Third has to do something about it. Yeah. So what happens is, you know, the, as you mentioned, right, the, the heresy is spreading in the south of France in particular, and it's and it's spreading not just so much in terms of people adhering to it and believing it. Um, but it's also, the, the Albigensians were a little bit different in that they actually created a, a kind of counter-church, if you will. I mean, they organized themselves in very similar structure to how the Catholic Church was, is organized. Right? Mm. Dioceses, they had a, a, what, what, something akin to a priesthood, if you will, a, a group of very core believers who, who administered their various oaths and rituals and things known as the perfect um, and and that so that they set up a kind of a counterexample to some of the poorly behaved and, and malformed clergy in the south of France at the time. And so, yeah, popes before this time, leading up to here as we get into the late 12th, early 13th century, popes have been trying to deal with the issue of heresy throughout Christendom, um, and it really came to a head here in the south of, of France. And one of the things that that the church did was there was a change in legal practice, it really in this in the 12th century. And, it, and in, throughout Europe, um, but even through in the church, and it was really was a, a reinvigoration or a reuse of, of Roman legal practice going back to the Roman imperial times. And the switch here was from accusatorial to inquisitorial practice. And so I don't have the time to get into the specifics of it, but in essence what, what the switch was is that inquisitorial practice relies more on the um, you know, accumulation of evidence, of, the, of witnesses, of of actually then having the person accused of a crime confessing to that crime. Mm-hmm. And so what what begins here is this initial stage of what's what later becomes known as the institutional inquisitions throughout the church in various areas of Christendom. But at this time really is more accurately described as 
these papal inquisitors. So eventually what happens is you have popes um, who appoint these medieval inquisitors at the time here in the 12th century. It's mostly Dominicans, a fairly new order at this time. Partly they grew up as a result of what was going on in the south of France because St. Dominic actually travels through this region. Um, during this time, he sees the impact of the Albigensian heresy. He sees how much the uh, poorly formed clergy is influencing people away from the church and, and how the, the perfect of the, of the Albigensians seem to be you know, living virtuously and providing a good example. He sees how the, the Catholic priests at the time really aren't are formed well to be able to articulate the teachings of the church authentically to the people. And so he decides to create the order of preachers, right, whom we know as the Dominicans, mm-hmm. to be able to counteract and combat this heresy. And so they, it, the whole time that that, you know, uh, order is, is created, you have this legal revolution, you have popes more focused on uh, heresy and the threat that heresy is, not only to the soul, obviously, of the person who embraces it, but also even to society as a whole. And that's one thing that we kind of miss when we talk about heresy back in this time period, is that heresy during the Middle Ages was not only a secular or um, an ecclesial offense, if you will, uh, an offense against the church, but it was also a secular offense as well, because larger society believed that the heretic was one who was a threat to the unity, to the communal growth, and the communal good of society. So it had to be addressed. And, you know, and again, St. Dominic uh, founds the Order of Preachers, and out of that we get uh, the teacher par excellence, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's then I was the great, who was, I think he said it was yesterday, right? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me jump to a, another period, uh, because we, we've, we've, we're in the shadow of this um uh, sexual abuse crisis, and I've heard people say that they can't imagine this kind of thing ever happening before in the church. Um, take us back to the late 11th century and describe for us what we were dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's true. People, and this it illustrates this particular uh, you know question. Actually, illustrates the whole. The point we were making earlier before the break of, you know, just turning to church history and knowing church history and being able to take solace from church history when, when there are current crises in the church. And that's exactly right. I mean, we've been living through, as you mentioned, the last 20 years or so of this you know, horrible time of in, in the shadow of, of that of the clerical sexual abuse crisis. But sadly, it's not the first time in church history that this has actually happened. Um, there was, if, if one can imagine, even a somewhat greater um, crisis in this same area, yeah. if you will, in the 11th century, as you mentioned, the 11th century. And the situation here is there are a multitude of different um, abuses in the church at the time, but 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 the um, priests not living their promise of celibacy in the 11th century was a significant problem. And it really manifested itself in two different ways. One way was priests either actually having wives, if you will, or living as if they had wives, living openly with women, having ch- having children, or not even necessarily, you know, just having concubines, if you will, as well. And it was pretty rampant throughout most of, of Christendom. Um, but then also, too, there was a significant problem in the Benedictine monasteries of Europe at the time of homosexuality. Um, it was rampant and quite quite pervasive. And so, as does happen in many times in the Church's life, especially during these times of crisis, the Holy Spirit raises up, you know, a, a prophet, if you will, or a holy person to kind of shine the light on these these wicked uh, you know, practices and, and to call for reform. 
And at this time, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit brought forth St. Peter Damien, yeah. a man, a Benedictine monk himself, who was very, very holy and virtuous, who recognized really the principle, the authentic principle of Catholic reform, which is to reform oneself first, to ensure that, you know, individually we're living the best relationship with Jesus that we can. Then once once you focus on, on that, you can then begin to call for, uh, you know, renewal at a much larger level. So Peter focused on being the best monk that he could be and the best, you know, uh, disciple of Christ that he could be. Then he began to, uh, you know, encourage his fellow monks, his fellow Benedictines to do the same. And eventually when he knew that the problem was significant throughout the whole church, he actually wrote a series of letters to the Pope at the time, Pope St. Leo IX, asking him to intervene and to really, you know, address this problem of, of clerical sexual immorality throughout the church, both in terms of enforcing the promise of celibacy as well as, uh, you know, rooting out the problem of homosexuality in the monasteries. Eventually, the series of letters that he writes to Pope St. Leo IX are compiled in a book, and in the 14th century, they're given the name, or uh, the book is given the title, The Book of Gomorrah, um, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is an apt title. Um, but St. Peter didn't give that, that title okay. to his letters itself, but it was something later. And it's a book that you can actually, it was a recent translation that came out a couple of years ago, which is excellent, which you can still uh, which is in, in print, you can um, you know buy and read yourself and, and encourage people if they're interested in the subject to do so. But St. Peter asked Pope St. Leo IX to, to investigate this and to deal with it, and Pope St. Leo IX did. I mean, he, he ushered, ushered in uh, one of the most comprehensive papal reform movements in all of Church history. Hmm. Uh, and it wasn't wow. just on this issue. There were many other issues that he was dealing with, and St. Leo IX um, you know, all, already had a plan of reform and renewal in his mind when he came to the papacy. But so he kind of enfolded St. Peter Damien's, you know, clarion call to him, if you will, into that larger reform movement. Um, and how St. Leo IX actually, you know, engaged his reform was he traveled throughout uh, Christendom, which, you know, w- we are used to popes leaving Rome and going on various apostolic visitations and things. But at the time, in the late 11th century, that was not common at oh, all. Okay. Um, in fact, you know, Pope Leo spent very little time, um, only, you know, uh, very, very little time in this pontificate in Rome itself. He was on the road. And how he did this was he, he held synods. He held, you know, regional and local synods where he went um, to enforce clerical celibacy and to get rid of, you know, all these different ecclesiastical abuses, even deposed bishops, uh, you know, who weren't uh, with his program and with his reform program and instituted more virtuous men. And he's known for being the first pope who actually created cardinals hmm. from men outside of Rome, uh, across the Alps. So he, he broadened uh, his advisors, the cardinals, to men from other areas of Christendom who were also very much focused, as he was, on virtuous living and on reform of the Church. Yeah. So he's a great man in the Church's history, Leo the Ninth. We've got, we've got about three minutes left, and I'd like you to, uh, as you do in the book, talk about how to respond uh, to crisis in the Church and how not to, and, and give us some models. Yeah, briefly, I mean, we have, my last chapter of the book is, is, as you mentioned, a historical case study of how to respond and how not to respond uh, to to living in a time of, of crisis in the church. And so I take two people, both living at different times in, in church's life, but also dealing with very significant crises as examples for that. And and how not to respond is uh, given by the example of Savonarola, who was mm-hmm. a 15th century Dominican, who principally was in Florence. Um, and the reason why not to follow Savonarola is because ultimately he wrapped himself up in politics. He became more focused on politics than on the spiritual life and 
his real fundamental problem was that he believed that he had the answer to reform in the church, that his plan was the plan that had to be followed. Mm-hmm. And everyone who didn't follow his plan was an enemy of not just him, but of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he was full of a little bit of hubris. Uh, if you, you know, uh, and then the other example is St. Catherine of Siena, a woman who lived in a time of great crisis in the church. The popes are living in the south of Avignon. There's this great problem of absenteeism. Rome is dilapidated. There's significant issues. And she firmly and forcefully called for the church to be reformed, called for the Pope to move back to Rome, even went to Avignon herself herself to bring him back to, to Rome. Um, but when you look at the life of St. Catherine and how she dealt with these issues, she always had at heart that it was Jesus who was in charge, right? That she never wavered from her understanding that she is merely just his instrument. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't her plan that had to be followed. It's just people had to listen to him, and it was her job to point people to him. So it wasn't about her, as it was in the case of Savonarola. It was about Christ. And that's how we have to respond. You know, we, we can be disaffected and under, upset um, about all the things that are going on or various things that are going on in the world or in the church or what have you. But at the end of the day, what matters most is our relationship with Christ and how effectively we image forth his likeness yeah. in the world as his disciples in, in you know in union with our our baptismal promises yeah yeah no well said you actually have a quote from pope francis here from amoris Laetitia, which i love uh the lack of historical memory is a serious shortcoming in our society a mentality that can only say then was then now is now is ultimately immature knowing and judging past events is the only way to build a meaningful future memory is necessary for growth. <laughs> I love it because I think we're victims of chronic historical amnesia these days. So, and uh, very true. Yeah, Steve, thanks so much. Uh, you're a great help and a great blessing uh, to the church, especially at a time where so many people are f- deeply suspicious and deeply fearful of the future. So, thanks so much. Absolutely, Al. Thanks again for having me back on the show. Appreciate it. Steve Weidenkopf, again, uh, all the work that he's done, uh, I recommend to you. Um, His book, The Glory of the Crusades, outstanding. And then he's got the series, the epic video series on church history. Uh, Today we were talking about light from darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. And this is, again, I keep coming back to this. This enables you to stand firm in tough times.